Four Corners podcast. So hello and welcome everybody to the next episode of the Four Corners podcast with your host, Klisman Marathi. And on this episode, we have Martin Armstrong. He is a former international hedge fund manager and founder and president of Armstrong Economics and Socrates, which is an AI investment tool. Welcome, Martin. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Wonderful. Now, Martin, I've seen a lot of your work in the past, and I'm sure large swaths of our audience may have heard of you as well. And I'm going to start the first question with actually a quote. And this quote comes from so a tech uh, a tech billionaire in, in, in the United States. His name is Chamath Polyapatia. He, sort of, he was an executive at Facebook for a while, then he started his own fund. And he says something which I think will resonate with you. And I want to get your thoughts on what you think about this statement. He gave this statement during a talk at, um, I think, at Stanford University a few years back. And uh, he says this. He says, uh, and quote, anyone who wants to get into politics, they're all effing puppets, he says. He goes, there are 150 and they are all men who run the world, period, full stop. They control the, the most important assets. They control the money flows. And these are not the tech entrepreneurs. They're going to get rolled over in the next five to 10 years by the people who really underneath are, who are, who are really underneath putting the strings. And when you get behind the curtain and see how that world works, what you realize is, is that it is unfairly set up for them and their progeny. Now, given that statement, how much do you agree with that? And if you do agree with it, who are these people? Uh, I don't think there is really 150. Um, it's It really comes down to maybe a handful of people who are trying to push their theoretical agendas. Uh, and <clears throat> yes, you've had like, you know, 150, you know, people that are rich, whatever, uh, and have their different companies that they've they've created. But uh, I would say this is the first time we've seen any uh, coordination uh, in a major effort. Um, it, it's it's sort of like um, why I would disagree with that. It's kind of like saying, you know, when do you ever get people in Congress to all vote the same? Um, you know, it, it, there's always different factions that are are fighting with each other, etc. Um, the the most dangerous, I would say, at this point is the World Economic Forum, uh, which has created this uh, agenda, per se. And then they use peer pressure to keep others in line uh, that, oh, well, they're doing it, so I guess we should be doing it. Um, that, that sort of thing. So um, I would say that uh, it's not... The, the idea of controlling assets and money right now, it's more like controlling power. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there's money you can, you know, they've got more money than what they could ever spend legally. You know, um, I mean, how many houses can you buy? You know, I mean, it's, it's just, you know, there's nothing you can do with the money. It's monopoly money. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I can say being a, hedge fund manager and you're, you're putting in orders for billions of dollars back and forth that day then you go out to dinner and you spend 300 bucks you know um it's it's a completely different world i mean i mean 
what can you spend on dinner? I mean, what, what $10,000, maybe buy a fanciest bottle of wine. I mean, you can't possibly use billions of dollars for a lifestyle like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's what we would call monopoly money. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's for a power game. You're buying this or that. What can you influence? So, so it's, um, there are a lot of people that make up these ideas. It's all assets and they want to own everything. I don't really think it's that. It, it's, it, it's taking it up to the next level of power mm-hmm. um, and not something that you measure. Well, I got you know, $20 and you only have 10, so I'm better than you. you know, it, it's, it's more power uh, oriented, egotistical. So that's quite interesting that you say that because naturally, you know, Chamathi's. Um he works in the business world in Silicon Valley, which could be seen as a bubble and having, you know, connections or having an understanding of international politics is a different level. How would you, how would you define the hierarchy of power, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs? I know the, the old, the old socialists map would have the proletariat at the bottom. They'd have the priest somewhere in the middle and they'd have, you know, sort of uh, the people who run things at the top. How does that structure power, work from your experience being in the financial slash political world over the last 40 years is there a method to get there or is it is it based on something that we don't understand yet yeah it's it's moving to a new level uh i would say over the past 40 years i mean i've dealt with heads of states i mean all sorts of governments from from the east to the west i mean when uh, the Asian currency crisis happened in 97. <clears throat> uh, I was the one asked to come flying in, you know, to, to meet with the Central Bank of China. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I, <clears throat> it was very interesting, for example, in that meeting, um, <clears throat> we were talking about the currency's collapse, etc. And I'd said, look, the capital flow shifted. And it's all starting to move back to the United States and Europe because they're going to create the euro. So everybody wanted to get there for the euro. And uh, so I'm, I'm there in this meeting with the central bank and they said, yes, you're right. We agree with you. Uh, capital flows are really there. I said, well, it'd be nice if, you know, why don't you just come out and say that? Oh, well, we can't do that because it's political. So they mm-hmm. cannot come out. And this was China in 97. Mm. All right. They could not come out and say, hey, the capital flows and the currency crisis in Southeast Asia was caused by capital moving to set up for Europe. Mm-hmm. Shifting blame and political, they, they, they couldn't come out and say that, but yeah. they invite me in to say, oh, yes, you're right. You know, uh, so you, you, you begin to see that before it was more of a um i would say a respectful relationship whereas now we're in this um period unfortunately i think with somebody with bill gates and soros and and klaus schwab uh using money basically for their own theoretical ideas mm-hmm. is, is different than what you would uh, say as far as 150 companies getting together, they would never get together. Yeah. Um, you know, they all don't agree on one thing. This yeah. is something different, uh, and uh, so it's a merger, largely of this idea of climate change, uh, population control, and um, 
<clears throat> one world governments has been, you know, Soros's dream uh, with his open society. And then you have Klaus Schwab with his economic ideas of, of eliminating democracy uh, and it should be more authoritarian. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's, it's a blending of those ideas rather than one individual. Yeah. And is there a counterweight to this sort of cabal of people moving in that one direction that are trying to change the agenda or not be part of it? I know, for example, it's very hard to get China on board on such a such a massive plan and also nations like yeah, Russia. I mean, but are they the only kind of counterweights to that? Or are there individuals or groups of individuals in the West who are trying to counter this narrative as well? Well, there are people in the West, but this is what this cancel culture is all about. They're trying mm -hmm. to shut yeah. them down. Uh, remove them from YouTube or uh, <clears throat> Twitter or Facebook or whatever. Um, I mean, they've been promised effectively to take over the world banking system. That once you move to an electronic view uh, and with digital currencies, then you're no longer going to need the local bank. Mm -hmm. uh, and <clears throat> even with this COVID thing, a lot of you know, banks have shut down branches. Uh, it's just seen that they don't need them so much anymore. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I mean, Twitter's like, you know, has its uh, moving into banking and things. I mean, so is Google. And so this is why they're part of the cancel culture. I mean, they think that's what they're going to get out of it. Um, <clears throat> Are they part of the idea of the real agenda all the way? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just dangling a carrot in front of them and they're moving in that direction. Yeah. And when you mentioned digital currencies, I know you've spoken about this many times before. And from a lay person's point of view, one may say, well, we sort of have digital currencies as a stand. I can pay for things with, uh, with PayPal. I can, I can pay with stuff with uh, a credit card. What you're saying is more deeply, what you're saying is that they're trying to get rid of paper currency completely so they can tax people much more efficiently. Is that what you're saying? Yes, but it's also a fact that, uh, you know, you have the European Central Bank has lowered interest rates to negative since 2014. Mm -hmm. All right. And the old economic theories have failed. They thought if they lowered it to negative, that people would spend and that would stimulate the money because they would be punished if they didn't spend the money. Mm -hmm. So what they did, they started taking money out of the bank in cash and putting it in safes. So <clears throat> this is what you have. Uh, I mean, there's been, you know, Larry Summers and others have come out and talked about this. They call it the, you know, the zero boundary. Uh, so <clears throat> the way to, you know, way they view it, is that their theories were not wrong. It's just that the people made them wrong. So um, they never want to admit a mistake. So their issue is that the only reason that failed to stimulate, despite creating all the money, mm -hmm. uh, was because people hoarded. Yeah. So if we eliminate the hoarding, then the old economic theories of Keynesianism, etc., would work again. Yeah. So this is part of, of that agenda. By going to a digital currency, you can't hoard it. Yeah. Um, so there, paper money, people can hoard. Yeah. It's the hedge 
also in a lot of different things. And uh, so this is it, so it's a little deeper than just the taxation. Yeah. But if everything's in the bank and there's no way for you to have money outside the bank, yeah. uh, their argument is you also eliminate bank runs and things of this nature. Um, and you get to tax everything all the time. Yeah. But doesn't it get difficult though, Marty, because when you're looking at digitizing currency, you can only really do that for the nations that you have influence over. You can't really do this globally because infrastructure for this isn't as developed globally. So inevitably what you'll have is again, a, a tiered system where you'll have the digitized currency, then you have the rest of the world, which is coming up, developing their economies and even developing the infrastructure. That plan can't work holistically, especially when you have different levels of technological integration around the world. So how do they get over that? They don't think about that. <laughs> um, you're attributing too much um, intelligence to these people. Um, they tend to judge the world by what they see and only outside their window. Mm -hmm. All right. <clears throat> you had India started with canceling their higher notes. Mm -hmm. You know, India was kind of on board. We got to start pushing this. Yeah. Um, but I mean, if you look at, you know, like I said, you know, it, people don't understand really what happens. Yeah. Uh, the German hyperinflation of 1923 did not take place because they simply printed money. In December 1922, they confiscated 10% of everybody's money and handed them a bond. All right, so then people no longer wanted their money. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the hyperinflation takes place then because the confidence in government collapses. Mm -hmm. You look at 1991, and um, you have the same thing going on in, in, in Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, they canceled the 50 and 100 uh, <clears throat> uh, ruble notes that were from 1961, and you had three days to do it. And then they limited it to the maximum you could do was 1,000. So basically, they were confiscating your assets that you had over 1,000 rubles. Mm -hmm. um, so it was the same thing. It was like going after the hoarding of money. Um, Japan is one of the, the major classical examples. Each emperor would come in and issue new coins, which were basically just bronze. So, and but their value would be always like astronomical, had nothing to do with the metal content. Yeah. Uh, and he would devalue whatever coins were out there, saying, "Oh, well, the ones issued by the last emperor only were ten percent of these new ones." Now, uh, so eventually, people wouldn't accept the Japanese coinage anymore and the emperors lost the right to even issue money for 600 years. Hmm. They would use the coins of China or bags of rice, but they would never trust the government. Yeah. So this is more or less what you're, you're dealing with. And they think that these, uh, you know, digital currencies will give them a hundred percent control, but it's hard to really get to that point, even within the West industrialized countries. Mm -hmm. uh, not everybody uh, has bank accounts or whatever. And <clears throat> history says it will end up kind of like Japan with, you know, you start trading bags of rice. <laughs> um, 
But saying that though, Marty, don't you think that if if this plan isn't as sophisticated or if they don't um, take care of er any eventuality, how much of a threat is it or is it even important to focus on? Because if they don't have such a you know stable plan that eventually this is going to not work, but is it the repercussions of it not working which will be the biggest impact onto the world, not it working? Yes, I mean, um, it, it's the same thing with this Great Reset, yeah. um, climate change, etc. Um, you know, expecting that they can <clears throat> intimidate China and Russia yeah. into doing this, they're absurd. Um, you know, honestly, it, it, it shows the lack of sophistication what these people are doing. They, they, this whole COVID um, scam really has been deliberate in trying to, to crush the economy and shut, shut it down for the climate change. Uh, in 6,000 years of recorded history, nobody has ever locked down their economy ever um you know the the death rate of covid is 0.028 percent that's the same as the hong kong flu in the 60s and in the middle of that they had woodstock Uh, i mean it's it's never been nobody's ever locked down something like this i mean you know and then they they put out you know things oh this is great co2 went declined this has been the real objective um, I mean, they tried putting Greta uh, Thornburg up and, and thinking, okay, fine, we'll use a 16-year-old girl, and that didn't work, all right? So now it's more or less going on, becoming very aggressive with it. Yeah. Um, the problem is, is that you can't switch this, and um, I mean, China, the, the bulk of its electricity comes from coal. Yeah, I mean, they're not going to just shut this down. Uh, and uh, as we are destroying our economy in the West, that boosts China. Mm. And what they don't understand, uh, if you look at that and correlate it with military action, mm. um, you had the, you know, the Civil War in the United States, North versus South. Uh, the North won. Why? Because it was industrial. Yeah. The South was primarily, agri- you know, agrarian. Yeah. All right. So in order to win, you need more than just, you know, uh, more troops. That's right. You need the ability to sustain those troops. All right. Supply lines, etc. All right. And uh, that's what took Napoleon down. So uh, and eventually it took Hitler down. All right, so we are destroying our economy at the very worst possible time because it makes us weak and China realizes that they want to take Taiwan, they can. Who really has the ability to stand up? I mean, Japan's already said they're not going to defend it. Yeah. Um, Will Biden actually be able to send enough troops over there to outnumber the Chinese if they mm. wanted to invade? No way. Yeah. Um, so, you know, people talk about uh, nuclear war. I mean, the next war, the more dangerous is probably biological. Yeah. Back to like World War One, where they use gas. Um, do you really want to, 
nuke a place and get rid of the infrastructure? Probably not. Um, What is uh, Taiwan is more than just a former territory of the China, the former empire. Uh, It also holds about 60% of the world's uh, chip production. Yeah. Uh, so it would have a, a major impact upon computer technology, phones, communications, Cars, yeah. everything. Yeah, sure. Um, so we don't realize how much uh, of an economic input um, Taiwan has been. Yeah. And as a result, it's also a, a, a wonderful carrot for China to look at. Yeah. So the way... The way that it comes across to me seeing this from my point of view is that recently, even when Biden put sanctions on Russia for a whole host of cyber cyber you know attacks that Russia did on the U.S. Uh, annexing Crimea, etc., that's the most they could really do is apply sanctions onto onto non-lethal kinds of aggravated uh, actions. But when it comes down to anything more serious. I don't think they have a protocol for how to really engage with China militarily. And also given the fact that they have more to lose than to gain by being involved militarily with China, because you're going all the way into their back garden as opposed to it being the other way around. So do you think this sense of political correctness when dealing with international leaders is going to continue with the Biden administration or will anything happen militarily which would require them to act. But because of even the rhetoric that they're holding now, domestically, it seems quite PC. Will they have any kind of legitimacy from the American populace's point of view to do anything more serious than just sanctions in any part of the world, let alone China? I mean, I don't really think so. I mean, um, one of the the biggest, uh, I would say, things with Trump that really i think a lot of people supported was he had vowed to to end these endless wars and um and i think that uh, you know americans are just kind of fed up with all that stuff you know uh, i think so too i mean they've all they've ever done is lied about everything you know weapons for mass destruction and i mean i mean it's just endless Mm. um World War One, and the Germans took a an ad in, in New York newspaper saying, "Do not, you know, sail on the Lusitania. They're filling it with with weapons." Um, I mean, World War Two, it's it's same thing. They knew what well, you know the the Japanese were going to attack Pearl Harbor. They just moved the biggest ships out. Yeah. Um, so all this is just propaganda. I mean, it, it's also known by Vietnam. I mean, even. President Johnson, after addressing the nation and all this other kind of stuff, uh, it's well documented. He says for Vietnamese never fired on Americans. And he says, for all I know, they were shooting at whales that night. Um, They lie about absolutely everything to get involved. Um, And you take a a look. Crimea um, is Russian. They don't even speak Ukrainian there. It's always been Russian, all right? Um, and to argue that 
oh, during the Soviet Union, they assigned Crimea to that province. Uh, I mean, the people there do not, they're not Ukrainian. Uh, and I mean, I know a lot of you Ukrainians and they joked about Yanukovych because he couldn't even speak proper Ukrainian on TV. It was from the East. Mm-hmm. All right. So, um, you know, this idea of, oh, well, that that was ours because it was given to us by Soviet. Well, they should have basically, in my opinion, divided Ukraine up based, you know, according to the ethnic diversity, period. Um, and I mean, that's like saying Mexico really should invade and take Texas because it used to be theirs. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, the people there speak English, they're Americans, all right? So, I mean, you, you have to understand uh, what's going on. It's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a lot of it's just political hypocrisy. And that's it. That again. Because your, your ideas, Marty, are, come from your cyclical view of understanding not only human affairs, but also economic affairs and that how they're so interlinked together. Whereas economics tells you differently if you look at the sciences, they show a cyclical nature to everything. If that is the case, that the world is cyclical, then really there are no such thing as black swans, really, because uh, things like things like COVID or, or things that interrupt the economical system come around every, uh, every so often, depending on what cycle, whether it's a super cycle or, or a micro cycle, that this idea of black swans shouldn't really exist in the first place. Would you agree with that sentiment? Yes, I mean, it's, um, there is no such thing as a black swan. I mean, nothing goes against the, the basic trend. It, it builds up uh, and, y- and you can see it. I mean, it's, um, I mean, I've dealt with governments and heads of states for basically 40 years. And, and I can see it just from the people that I deal with. Um, I mean, I was friends with Maggie Thatcher. I mean. Invited to her house for Christmas. I mean, we could sit down and actually have an intelligent conversation. Mm-hmm. And I don't know any world leader today that I could do that with. Mm. Uh, and um, I, I've told the story that I used to be part of the vetting process for Republicans, and they would send me in and, and to meet with people who wanted to run for president. Mm-hmm. And it was like. <clears throat> they were told i was there to tell them about the you know the world economy and how it functions and i was asked to assess them and when i would get back they what do you think is he intelligent and often understand it and then in 1999 um they said look we want you to go down to texas to meet with george bush jr i said yeah okay no problem they said oh but this one's different i said what's different and they said, look, you know, he's stupid. And I'm not making that up. That was the word they used. I, I said, what? I mean, after, you know, dealing with people who wanted to run for president and the question was, are they intelligent enough yeah. to know this guy's stupid? And yeah. I asked, why would you make somebody stupid president? And they said, well, he's got the name. Yeah. And so they put in Dick Cheney and in all fairness, Bush was not responsible for Iraq war. It was, it was all Cheney. Um, and since he's been out of office, you don't see him running around giving speeches. Mm. All right. Um, you just see Obama, et cetera, and, and Clinton. But you don't really see Bush Jr. So I mean, because he's got enough money anyway. He doesn't need to be giving speeches for money. 
No, they all do that anyhow. Uh, but it's more or less a um, that he's not up to, to par on that sort of thing. Um, uh, Biden's kind of the same thing, but, you know, maybe even worse. And uh, this time around where Cheney was running this, you know, the government under Bush, Harris is not running the government under under Biden. Yeah. So who's really running this is basically the behind the curtain bureaucracy. And, and that's the real problem. Um, I mean, under Trump, uh, I think that he was naive in the sense that he thought it's like running a company. I'm going to walk in there. I'll, I'll be the boss, whatever. And you're not. Uh, um, you walk in there and you realize that these people are not loyal to you. They're loyal to the swamp. Um, and so he was like firing people, etc. And And even like Bolton coming out, oh, he's a danger to the country because he's taking troops out of Afghanistan. Well, you know, Biden's doing that now. All right. Uh, but this is all theater most of the time. And uh, unfortunately, you know, the reason they hated Trump so much was that because he thought he could actually do things. Uh, whereas the bureaucracy says, shut up, go play golf, we're in charge. That's basically what, what the agenda is. And so we're back to that, but worse than I've ever seen in my history. And do you I think mean, this is going to compound? Like, Sorry to cut you off. Yeah, saying, I, do you think this is going to compound for the next election? Because if you believe there was, you know, electoral shenanigans happening this time around, then surely if they want to keep on to this power, they're going to try their best to, uh, to stay, especially if Trump runs in 2024. That's going to be something that they'll keep an eye out on. Oh, yeah. Now, look, there, uh, there are people, Republicans. Mm -hmm. uh, I've had calls on the subject, you know, they want to talk Trump into not running and they would like to put DeSantis, who's the governor of Florida, up. Mm -hmm. And quote, unquote, Oh, he's a much better administrator because uh, he's a career politician. Um, so, you know, I th like DeSantis. I think he's done a fantastic job in Florida. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I told him I'd rather him stay here in Florida, actually, because, uh, uh, you know, that's basically he's done a great job here. But he goes to Washington. It's not going to be the same. Yeah. Yeah. Marie, talk to us more about your war cycles, because you have your economic uh, confidence cycles um, uh, sort of project or um, innovation. Can you talk to us about how does that link into your idea of how the cycle of war? Because from a layperson's point of view, it seems as if war happens anytime nations get too big and you have a Thucydides trap that happens. But you have a much more sophisticated understanding of why and how wars develop could you go into that first please yeah i mean it's it's pretty simple really um war only comes when um there's been an economic decline uh people then are angry they've lost things they want to point to oh you know they're responsible whatever uh and so that's really what you're looking at and, and mm -hmm. i i basically say war never comes when everybody's fat and happy yeah that's what is so wrong about sanctions. Mm. 
um, why have sanctions failed with Russia? Because you're openly saying, okay, I'm going to put in these sanctions. Putin can stand up and say, hey, it's not my fault. It's them. So they know not to blame Putin. Their theory is that if they put enough sanctions on, that the people will rise up and overthrow Putin. And it doesn't work that way. Uh, I can't find one incident where sanctions have ever worked. Yeah. They just don't. And um, he's got the perfect excuse. And it, it is the same excuse for war. Mm. That they're the ones that have done this. They're the ones that have cost all your jobs. You've lost the, everything. It's mm. all because the Americans go get them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that, looking at that, what does, the, what does the next, I don't know, maybe five years show in your cycle? Where are we at right now in that cycle? Because you can probably tell even by not seeing the cycle that we're not in a good place at all with all this tension across the world. But you mentioned the Middle East is a flashpoint and also also Asia or, 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 or Far East Asia. Is that still the case yeah. now? You look at what they're just trying to do with the climate change. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, they're basically saying they want to end fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. You're ending the economies in the Middle East. Um, that's really what you're saying. Mm -hmm. um, and <clears throat> I mean, you have some countries that realize that are trying to uh, adapt uh, Saudi Arabia to some degree, uh, trying to change their economy around UAE. Yeah. Is, yeah. Uh, yeah. All the GCC nations are trying to put in a vision 2030 plus for their for their economies, for sure. Yeah. Uh, but look, the, these things are just not feasible, really. Uh, this whole idea of this 2030 agenda coming from the World Economic Forum it is pie in the sky. Uh, mm. You know, the problem with people like Schwab is that they're just academics. They've yeah. never walked out and ever seen how the world really functions. Um, and most people don't realize that uh, even Keynes did not have a degree in economics. Yeah. Right? He was a mathematician. Yeah. Uh, all your people... Were, Smith, yeah. Yeah, Smith, Ricardo, even Marx, none of them had degrees in economics. Um, the ones who've had degrees in economics since are all these theoretical leftists, basically, like Piketty. Um, and they go, oh, these are professors, so we should know. No, that's just simply not true. Um you, you learn only from experience, not by simply reading a book. Mm. Um, you know, if, I mean, a classic example would be, okay, fine, I can read every, every book possible on brain surgery. You want to be yeah. my first patient? Uh, I mean, it just doesn't work that way. Sure, yeah. um, you, you have to understand how things are going. And um, I mean, <clears throat> I was probably one of the first international advisors. Uh, and I remember, you know, back in the early 80s, around 82, I think I was doing a, a, um, a conference in uh, Zurich. Mm -hmm. And there were people from, you know, Canada, different places. And we were talking about gold and currencies, etc. And I and one guy from Canada, I said, Yeah, okay, fine, you should be buying this. And the guy from Switzerland said, yeah, but if I did that, I would lose. 
and I'm looking well, yes, because of your currency, you got to sell and you should be buying. So mm. it was like um, you had to look at things globally from everybody's perspective, not just your own and not just simply in dollars or pounds or, yeah. or euros or whatever. Yeah. Um, and you have to look at things on a global scale and then you'll see uh, what people will do and how they'll move. Yeah, for sure. Now, if I want to jump into a part of the world that really doesn't get discussed at all. Let, let, let alone enough and i haven't really heard you talk about it a lot so i want to get your thoughts on it and this is the region of the balkans this seems to be a black hole of political uh you know evaluation or even economic consideration the only times they look at that region is if is if uh, there's some ethnic strifes that are coming to the foreground but a lot of balkan nations want accession into the eu as you full well know and they're trying their best, at least on the surface, to, to, to meet the requirements that the EU have put on them. Now, many say that this is false hope that the EU is giving them because they can barely afford to keep the, the union together as it is now with, with, with uh, debt to GDP rising so much across, across uh, European economies. The last thing they want is, is Albania or Kosovo, Serbia joining the union and causing even more problems, bringing their ethnic divides into this union. Have you got any thoughts on how this plays out in the Balkans? Yeah, well, what does your model show? Yeah, if, if you can go to your model, also your Europe thoughts. Europe is, is really, uh, it's fragmented and it's, it's declining. Mm. Um, <clears throat> I, I did one interview in France and, and I explained that uh, what made America great was very simple that they, um, the people were discriminated against. Whoever was the last off the boat was basically discriminated against. Mm -hmm. So effectively that forced everybody to end up speaking the same language to get jobs, et cetera. Yeah. So in America, you'll see uh, someone from Scotland, uh, he's Scottish and he marries an Italian. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't see that in Europe. Um, Yes, there's always exceptions, but the, the main thing is the, is the language. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I have friends in France, and I'm sure if their daughter brought home somebody from Germany, he would quietly say, you do know what they did to us before. You know? uh, in, in Greece, you, when they were protesting against the EU, they were dressed up as Nazis. Mm. I mean, the, um, the ideas go back a long way. Um, I was there in Yugoslavia and before everything broke up and in a meeting and they said, oh, well, you know, uh, they killed the 600 of us and they, they, they put, just threw us in a mass grave. And I yeah. thought, gee, I guess I missed that. When would that happen? Oh, about yeah. 700 years ago. I said, oh, yes, that one. Okay. Um, so the, the memories go back yeah, much long longer. Way. Yeah. Um, and they're not easily dis you know, dispensed with. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I don't see uh, Europe as surviving. It's 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 more than a single currency. They, they thought, OK, fine. Um, when they were going to create the euro, they actually came to me and I told them they attended our conferences in London. I said, you know, they were standing up and saying, oh, a single currency and everybody will pay a single interest rate like the United States. I said, 
that's not going to happen. I mean, you're talking a single interest rate for the for the U.S. dollar at a federal level, mm. but we. 50 states and 50 states pay different interest rates according to their their credit you know rating and so they they sold the euro with false dreams um that everybody be paying you know the same interest rate etc and none of that none of that became true what happens um so you know the, the single currency i can tell you was pushed uh, mainly by the Germans, by coal, for one reason. Mm -hmm. And that was to eliminate foreign exchange risk so the Germans could sell more product to the rest of Europe. Um, and that the currency they saw as the, as the big problem. And you've had this idea from Brenton Woods that, you know, everybody has to have a fixed exchange rate, which is just simply not true. Yeah. Yeah. So if we were to jump now to understanding something that you've spoken about before, but I want to get maybe some fresh perspective. You've spoken a lot on, on cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin specifically and how, you know, in your opinion, this isn't like digital gold for many different reasons that you can go into if you want. But if we look at the second most popular cryptocurrency or platform, that being Ethereum, have you got any thoughts on the value of that system? as opposed to just looking at what people look at typically when you look at crypto, which is Bitcoin. Is there any, there's obviously massive differentials between the two, but in your opinion, have you looked into the viability of Ethereum, especially as we move into the digitization of currencies, which are based on national uh, belonging? I think that um, you have to understand it from a political perspective. Yes. Uh, they have a monopoly as far as creating money. And their objective here is to end hoarding. Uh, and so I know people in like, you know, uh, gold refiners, they have to account for every gram where it came from and where it goes. Yeah. Uh, they're tracking gold like crazy. Uh, so, I mean, could you really hop on a plane and put, you know, twenty thousand dollars worth of gold or twenty thousand euros in your in a suitcase? No, mm -hmm. they'll confiscate it. So you have to ask yourself, really, do you think that they're going to allow private uh, cryptocurrencies to compete against them? They won't. Uh, uh, it's they're trying to shut down everything they possibly can, and and. The whole idea of going to a digital currency is to eliminate, uh, really just to eliminate this whole idea of hoarding money and any sort of an alternative. Hmm. So um, I you know, think it's more or less that they've allowed the cryptocurrencies to go and have even encouraged them, mainly because that is the selling point, okay? And then they come to, to the stage where they will um, confiscate them and then just convert them to their own, yeah. et cetera. Um, and at what rate, who knows? But yeah. um, it's, it's more or less going to be saying that these cryptocurrencies, see, this is better somehow than paper money. Yeah. <laughs> That's your yeah. objective. But... Um, I was going to say, do you think then 
in that case, since from your perspective, and I think from many people looking at politicians, they don't think it all the way through. Do you see something like what happened in Venezuela when they tried to introduce their uh, their crypto uh, digital currency there and it flopped big time because all people used was American dollars as a reserve as opposed to using anything in relation to what the government produced? Do you see something like this happening unintentionally in the West when they try to bring this on board? Could there be a rejection of adoption for whatever reason? And then if that would be yeah, to mean, be the case, could they force them some way, shape or form? Or is it more like putting a frog into cold water than heating it up as opposed to just dumping them into boiling water at the beginning? Uh, Europe is, is probably um, easier to be able to get along with that. Mm -hmm. The U.S. is in a much more difficult position. Mm -hmm. and, um, and what you're looking at there is that a, a, at least 70% of the paper dollars are outside the United States. Exactly. Uh, just as you said, Venezuela, I mean, same thing in, in, in Asia, yeah. uh, even in Russia. Yeah. Um, I mean, they were sending, you know, skids a hundred dollar bills for the last, you know, 20 years. Uh, so uh, what you're really looking at is that it's much more difficult for the United States to cancel the currency. Mm. Uh, it would be an international problem. Um, and uh, although, you know, I don't, I really don't think these people think things through. Mm -hmm. uh, they just come up with uh, <clears throat> bullet points. Oh, that's an idea. That's a good objective. But again, they're, they're being put together by academics who never look out their own window. Even. Mm. So I don't think they really have a, 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 a real idea as to what is going on. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, I think at the end of the day, that's why I end up getting pulled into all these different crises because they have no idea what they've done. And um, I, I just see the same thing over and over and over again. Um, and uh, it, it's just amazing to me, but but this is what, what happens. I mean, yeah. it's, uh, you know, and I've been called in from every which way you know throughout europe australia asia i mean it's so i've never seen any difference in the politicians anywhere. yeah it seems as if human nature you know politicians change but human nature doesn't so that's what keeps the cycles going the way they do you can't change human nature as easy it is to change a political leader then in that yeah, case they ahead, don't they don't know history and they're not interested so then who do you, if, if you were a person, who a, a concerned citizen who's looking at the world right now, be you a business owner, an investor, or a, a young person coming up now, who do, you, who do you listen to to trust in what's going on around here? I know, you know people would point towards what you're saying, but for the sophisticated investor out there, where would you suggest they get more, more uh, original, more va valuable insights from? Because if it's not coming from the newspapers, if it's not coming from the politicians, then how do you build a model of the world that makes sense to you? I know what, that's, what we're, that's what we're trying to do as a firm, and I know that's what you've been doing for over 40 years now. But where do they go to get this insight, which isn't tainted by political bias or by anything else? I, I really don't know. Um, <clears throat> it's it, the difference between... Um, a hedge fund manager and a fund manager is, mm -hmm. is fairly stark. Um, 
and <clears throat> the the primary thing is that is we're over regulated domestically. Yeah. So uh, actually, I had testified on this back in 1985. Mm-hmm. You know, you you have the the Commodity Futures Trading Commission regulating futures. Then you have the SEC regulating securities. When the 87 crash came, then the SEC is pointing the finger at the CFTC. Mm-hmm. CFTC is pointing the finger the other way. Mm-hmm. They end up coming to me, asking me if I would testify on their behalf against the SEC. I mean, this is like, uh, you know, and effectively what I said, look, you know, if you're going to hire me, it's to make the, the decision, should I be in bonds, stocks, yeah. futures, whatever. Uh, but the way the regulation is, is that, um, I mean, I had one of the major funds come to me and asked if, you know, they would give me, you know, $30 billion to manage. And I mm-hmm. said no, because it was only equities, long only. I said, I can't put on a hedge more than 17%. So, when something would happen, that means my reputation goes down the drain because I lost money that legally I could not protect my clients from. Hmm. I said, oh, thanks. Not interested in this kind of business. Yeah. Um, but that's what you have. You have almost like used car salesmen. Mm-hmm. You have somebody that sells bonds. Oh, these bonds are the best. They're better than equities. This, that's what he's going to say. Yeah. And next guy's going to say, oh, no, the tax-free munis are better than this, that, whatever. Yeah. Uh, it's because that's all they can sell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so your advice is always going to be tainted. Um, forget the political bias. I mean, if they are not able to look at everything freely, it's going to be biased to whatever they can do. So it's very short-term thinking, isn't it? Yeah, it, a gold dealer is always going to tell you gold is the best. Yeah, 100%. Um, yeah, it, it's just simply the way it is. Stockbroker is going to tell you, you know, Krispy Kreme's IPO is going to do better than anything else you've seen in your life. Yeah, it may, yeah. that makes sense. Um, They're going to peddle their own uh, their, their own juice. I mean, I was an international hedge fund manager. So I that the difference there is, okay, fine, where's the capital going to move now? All right, let's go to Japan. Yeah. Oh, okay, if Japan, we go to Southeast Asia. We have to look at the entire world. Yeah. Um, and so a domestic fund manager and or analyst usually does not. They, yeah. they, they're talking about what's the Fed going to do? What's mm. interest rates? Okay, mm. what is, what's Biden going to do with taxes or whatever? Mm-hmm. Do they even consider the risk of what would happen if China invaded Taiwan? Mm. Oh, well, that's important, you know. <laughs> I know, uh, I know. You appreciate it to convert it here uh, because that's exactly the same issues I have when I speak to potential. I'll give you an example. So I was speaking with a CIO of this fund in London. I won't mention any names. And we were talking about, you know, their fund. It was just the first meeting we, we got together on LinkedIn. And I asked him, so who does your geopolitical risk analysis? Oh, he goes, oh, we don't, we don't need. Uh, bear in mind, they were investing in emerging markets also. So I said, what do you mean you, you guys don't do geopolitical risk? He said, no, we don't do it. He goes, we uh, read the FT. That was, the, that was and it dropped, my, my jaw dropped. I, I, I couldn't believe what I was hearing when he said that to me. So I thought if this is even the perspective of even 1% of the man, fund managers in London, then we're in big trouble, let alone more. 
Oh, it gets even worse than that. I mean, I would, <clears throat> when um, the Euro was starting, <clears throat> at the time, uh, all the newspapers were say, oh, the British pound is going to collapse because Britain's not going to join the Euro. Mm -hmm. So, <clears throat> um, to tell you the truth, Mercedes had shorted a year's worth of, of sales in, in Britain. Mm -hmm. And they were down about a billion dollars. Mm -hmm. They called me in to look at this. I said, okay, fine. <clears throat> we got to flip you out of this thing. Help get them out of the position. And they said, they set up a meeting, said, you got to go over to Daimler-Benz because they, they did the same thing. So I went to Daimler-Benz. There I met with the board of directors. Okay. They didn't even have a, um, a desk that did anything. The, the hedging decisions were made at the board level. Wow. And because the board had lost money back and forth changing the hedge positions, they passed the rule. Once they did a trade, they let it expire. Yeah. So at the last day of the year, um, everybody was shocked that Daimler and Mercedes were merged. Mm. Basically, that Mercedes had a billion dollar profit, Daimler lost a billion, and the two of them yeah. were merged to hide the whole thing. I mean, but I mean, I've been called into so many different things that are, you wouldn't believe it. Mm. A major telecommunication company in um, in Europe. They were in Germany, and the government originally agreed that they could lay off twenty percent of the workforce. Mm -hmm. Okay, fine. They had to give them a hundred thousand uh, Deutschmark. Yeah. All right. Then at the last minute, the government changes its mind. It says, oh, it's not fair for you to pick and choose. You have to make the offer to everybody. So I get, I was in London at the time. I get a phone call, panicky from the board of directors, said, you got to come over here right away. Mm -hmm. I said, what's, what's the problem? We'll tell you when, we, when you get here. <laughs> I get there. The board basically, except for two people, uh, they appoint me as an advisor to their pension fund. Uh, and then they all resign. I said, what the hell is going on here? Am I invited to a Harry Carey meeting or what? Uh, <clears throat> and basically what happened, because the government said that they had to make the offer to everybody, the very best people they had that they wanted to keep took the 100000 because they know they could get a job across the street. Yeah. The people they wanted to get rid of didn't take the hundred thousand because they could never get another job. Yeah. So, you know, the director said, "Look, I'm out because this company is going to go down, yeah. and I don't want to have my resume that I was on this board when it goes down. I'll never mm. get a job myself." Mm. So the board resigns. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I mean, these are the things that I've seen over the years. It, it's you would never expect this in an academic, you know, um, environment or, yeah. or find it in a book that you're going to read in an economics class. Yeah. It seems to me that a lot of people focus on uh, sort of the 
esoteric ambitions of China when it comes time to their their uh, their position in dominating the U.S. and they point towards the reverse mergers. They taught they they point towards you know uh, Chinese companies raising money in U.S. stock exchanges when in fact they don't have the revenue coming in, so it's a fraud. But they don't look domestically at home. All the issues that that that, that happen within their own countries and how how rotten the system can get when they when when they look at oh, who yeah. the real enemy um, is. They always look beyond their borders to point towards actors and players who may be challenging them without taking a, a, a deeper look into their own position. Um, look, I can tell you straight up, because you know, I, I, you know, I <clears throat> have met with the various governments and what China has done is it is realized what made the U.S. Uh, the number one economy. Mm -hmm. versus Germany, all right? Germany pushed for the euro, why? Because they have a mercantile economy. Manufacture something and sell it to somebody else. Mm -hmm. all right. So if you look at uh, the list of who are the richest people in Europe, Italy comes uh, ahead of, of Germans. Yeah. All right, so uh, in the United States, why did the economy become the world economy? Because basically the U.S. had a domestic consumer market. Yeah. So everybody wanted to sell to the United States. That's right. So China has looked at this and they realize, okay, what made the United States work versus everybody else? So China is developing its domestic economy. Yeah. All right. They have a huge consumer market. Have more billionaires now in Beijing than New York City does. Yeah. Um, and people can look at debt and this and that and, and, and all the other scenarios I've 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 heard. What they're overlooking is what China is doing. China mm -hmm. is turned inward and they're developing their own economy yeah. and it will be the biggest economy in the world. Well, they mentioned that in their, in, their, in their five-year plan in March, their dual circulation development model, where they focus on internal consumption and also independence of the technological supply chains because they want to not be at the, at, uh, at the risk of outside players who can you know, uh, impact their supply chains in any way, shape or form. But how do you answer critics who say that, okay, China is trying to do economically the same thing as the U.S., but politically, uh, they're not the same, uh, obviously. And the political system is what's wrong with China. and They need to change the political system for things like uh, individual liberty to be realized. Because if you're a millionaire or billionaire in, 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 in China, you know, just like what happened with Jack Ma, we don't know where he, he's gone. That could happen to anyone who may speak out against the regime. Would you have the same kind of criticism or the same logic towards that argument as well? Not really, because the West is desperately moving in the same direction. Um, I mean, you look at the EU, you get to vote for Parliament, but Parliament has no power over the European Commission, mm. which doesn't stand for election. Mm. The head of the EU is selected by the, the heads of the states. Not, sure. It never stands for election. Sure. They really want the, the Chinese model. Um, they can, you know, talk up everything that they want and, and pretend that China is a communist and and uh, we're free. And, and that's just simply not true. Mm. Um, 
yes, it's still called the Communist Party, but communism yeah. means the government owns everything. Yeah. They're not. Um, they kept the name, but they did not, yeah. you know, economically, they're, yeah. they're, they're as free as everybody else is. Yeah. Say. Like, Deng, like, like Deng Xiaoping said, it's a communism with Chinese characteristics. Yes. I mean, I, um, I was invited to China, uh, kind of helping them to become capitalistic and versus Russia and, and completely different. And, and from what I saw, um, they took me to this one facility and, and at first I thought I was like, you know, Alice in Wonderland going down the rabbit hole or something. Uh, I went to this facility, was surrounded by tanks and had three huge satellites on the roof. And I'm like, oh, my God, where, where am I going? You know, um, and <clears throat> the room was filled with people downloading everything from the Internet. Mm -hmm. And then they took me into a room uh, and they showed that they had downloaded absolutely everything I ever wrote, things that I didn't maybe wrote uh, years ago that I didn't even have copies of. Yeah. Um, but then they took me into a room and they had, um, showed me, they had 249 varieties of tea. Mm -hmm. I never knew there were that many. Yeah. All right. They were tracking everything, but unlike the Russians, um, they did not interfere and they really didn't understand. They said, why is this tea? that's like a dollar here selling for $5 over here. I said, well, where is it? manufacture that and they said well it comes from here well first i said you have transportation costs yes, right. and they go oh okay all right uh, i said then somebody always wants to buy something from someplace else it, it's always better all right and but so they were monitoring it but they were not interfering we're under communism it was if it's a dollar here, it's a dollar everywhere, yeah. even if it took five dollars to get there. That's right. Uh, so uh, I was impressed with the fact that they were just studying the economy and how it was functioning. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Russia, it went from communism to an oligarchy. Yeah. Um, just, you know, corruption. That was it. So it never really developed uh, into a, a full blown um, capitalistic type system that you would think of. Mm -hmm. uh, if you wanted to open up a restaurant and you were competing with the oligarchs, you were dead. That was it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so a completely different atmosphere from both types of communism. Mm -hmm. Plus, um, you had, I mean, I went behind the Berlin Wall in, in, in East Germany before it fell, and uh, the Stasi were really quite oppressive. I mean, you couldn't um, do much of anything, really. Uh, you had to be careful. Um, had uh, met with somebody there and, and they would speak freely as long as nobody was around us. But as soon as somebody came close, oh, this is our tour bureau, they take such wonderful care of us. And as soon as they were out of earshot, yeah. oh, they told them, no, the son of a bitch or whatever. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Whereas, you know, in, in China, it, it was more of the tall poppy syndrome. Yeah. We don't care what you think or what you say, um, but if you stick your head up, it's going to be cut off. Yeah. Uh, whereas a friend of mine in East Germany, when the wall came down, 
he went and got a Stasi file. And he found out that everybody he thought was a friend were ratting on him. Yeah. And he came in and started punching holes in the wall. And my friend, um, who, who was his son, he thought his father was crazy. Yeah. And he's punching holes in the wall and pulling out microphones. And <clears throat> he died last year. But to, uh, after that, he would never speak to anybody other than his family. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, huge difference. I can I can attest to that too. I mean, as I mentioned, you know, communism was was alive and kicking in Albania as well. And even back then, uh, within the towns, the villages, uh, and, the, and and the cities, you had next door neighbors who you thought you know you could trust. But it came out afterwards that this this guy was a spy, that person was a spy, and when communism fell, these people were sort of banished, uh, not physically but so, socially. Because they thought we thought we we knew you, but communism was such that it was very hard to, to to trust people, especially even people sometimes within your own household. So I could see how how frustrated he must have been for that to come uh, to fruition. But looking at your economic confidence model and how it relates to China, China obviously has has their uh, China uh, twenty four I think twenty four forty nine or twenty thirty nine plan, where they want to be. The, the the top dog by then do you see this playing out well for them or how does your model link into into china's growth and development and where do where do they sit right now in uh, in their cycle um <clears throat> well they will exceed that in in a shorter time frame than what they actually have mm-hmm. mainly because of the um, stupidity that the west has done with covid mm. uh, you're deliberately um crushing the economy and um i mean you see shortages are developing now just about everything from chickens to to, uh i mean i had ordered a a refrigerator in december i had to wait in march to get it Uh, and when i said gee you know what's the problem and they said oh the chips come from thailand you know mm. you you lock down the world economy and oh everybody's got social distance and you can't drive and and um it was just absolutely insane yeah. um and i think a lot of it may have been um stupidity by a lot of these politicians that just did things because somebody else was doing it. Yeah. Um, and I mean, our governor in Florida, he locked this down, maybe, you know, just stay at home orders, um, but not really enforced. Mm. Uh, uh, and that went for 40 days. Mm. And now he come out and I give him a lot of credit. He says, that was a mistake. We should never have done anything like that. Mm. Um, I mean, Florida is is like an example of freedom, and the death rate of COVID was no worse than the than the states that locked down. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely very strange times happening now, and people really need to be vigilant. I think to see what's coming from the news, what's actually happening, and building a picture themselves as opposed to just passive compliance to everything and anything that's said. And this is even more important for business owners, but it's hard to go your own way especially when the legalities of the situation are against you 
Um, you have a new book, Marty, that's come out, uh, The Cycle of War and the Coronavirus, available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. For those who want to purchase that book, what kinds of things can they expect to read and, and learn from? Um, uh, well, I've tried to, to put in all the absolute research I could find on, on all the different wars, how that happens, how government uh, develops, and effectively what these people are doing is, uh, I mean, even Biden said it during the debates that, you know, he was going to rejoin the UN and to force China to comply with this build back better and, and great reset. Mm. Uh, that was part of their strategy. And, and that's why I said this is very serious because you, they don't realize by reducing the economy in the West, they're boosting uh, China and Russia. Mm. And there's no way they're going to join. Uh, they're not stupid. Uh, they, they know this is being manipulated. And I find it uh, really ironic how you have people on the left, they hate corporations and all this sort of stuff, oh, capitalism. But they're all willing to run out and believe Bill Gates and, and pharmaceutical companies. I mean, mm, mm, mm. we consistent here, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you have a lot of free. I mean, if people can't get a hold of the book for whatever reason, you have a lot of uh, material on your website, ArmstrongEconomics.com, I believe it is, where they can learn a lot about what you write about, freely available, some paid uh, articles and some paid research too. But on the whole, I think it's a great resource, which um, we'll put a link to. We'll, we'll, we'll put a link to all, all, all of these resources below. If this is a podcast you're listening to on any of the podcast platforms or on YouTube, you'll find a link below somewhere. Uh, finally, Marty, to, to get to maybe some morals of life that you've learned over time, uh, what, what, what kinds of things would you advise someone who's starting out in business or starting out in political affairs or even sort of students of international relations, where where should they spend their time focusing when, if they really want to learn how the world works? That's really a hard question because I mean most of what they teach in school is all wrong. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean even economics, they're still teaching you know the theories from the fixed exchange rate period. Mm. Uh, I mean that ended in seventy one. Um, I mean that is is part of our problem that the, the particularly at the academic level they don't uh, they they don't update or they don't really take into consideration what's going on in the world mm -hmm. mainly because the academics have you know uh, kind of like peer pressure you see with covid uh, the doctors to come out and say, no, this is wrong, cancel them, block them, whatever. Mm -hmm. If you go against the so-called establishment, you're, you're kind of like blacklisted. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, it's very difficult to say. I mean, I think that um, I'd love to see some people, you know, come to the political table. Uh, and change things, but unfortunately, I think we got to crash and burn first. First, yeah, for the phoenix to rise up the ashes. I think so. Wonderful. Okay, so I think we'll wrap it up there, uh, Martin. Thank you so much for your time, and for everyone else. This just to just to reiterate, this is was Martin Armstrong 
former international head fund, head fund manager and founder and president of Armstrong Economics and Socrates. If people want to contact you, Marty, I know uh, the, the website's there, but that'd be the best place. You've got a Twitter account as well that they can maybe send you messages and ask you questions. Would they be the best place for them? I would say the, um, um, just send it into the, into the website. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, I think that's probably the best, uh, I get an awful lot of emails and I go through them and I try to t answer some of the questions that are coming in and post great. them on the blog. Great. Great. Wonderful. And I'll definitely put a link there for everyone to see too. So for the last time, thank you so much. And hopefully we'll be able to speak again soon. Um, maybe in 2024, where some of your main predictions will come could come to be, so we can reevaluate what we've learned over the last few years. Well, thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much.